Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. start the word of warning there's some gremlins in the audio in this podcast welcome to the designer maker revolution today we've got mr peter walker great conversation he's an activist a woodworker professor at Rhode Island school of design one of the best design schools in the world i hope you enjoy mr peter walker peter walker welcome to the designer maker revolution hi adrian thanks for asking me to be involved in this it sounds mm. like a great project how do you describe yourself? Designer, artist, teacher? Yeah, that's quite a tricky question. And uh, you actually sort of pre-warned me about that opening question and I was thinking about it. What's the best way to answer it? And it's a weird... I've always found it hard to um, describe myself or what I do. Um, and there's a few things in that. One of the things is I, I find it hard to look in the mirror, actually, or hear myself on a recording... You're going to hear yourself a lot with this, you know. I'm always surprised, you know. (laughs) Really? Do I sound like that or do I look like that or all those kind of things? So then when you think of the sort of categories that you can become, you know, are you an artist or a designer or a teacher? I find that a really difficult thing to answer, actually. So I guess the the easiest way is that I'm probably all of those things at different times. Um, Sometimes they meld together, sometimes they're separate. Would it depend on the dinner party that somebody says to you, oh, what do you do? What do you do, yeah. But funnily, you know, and that happens a lot, doesn't it? It happens Mm. to you as well. Mm. But Mm. I always find it confronting because I always think, oh, what do I say? Mm. (laughs) It's never an easy question to answer, which is an interesting, you know, that is an interesting thing to to sort of not be sure of your own identity. I think uh, you're not alone. Possibly. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Have you ever had a sense that you're a revolutionary? Hmm. Because you are now, you know that, because you're on the design of making revelation. That's right, you've just made it official. (laughs) Yeah, I I guess I've never thought of myself as a revolutionary. Depending on what the definition of that is, I definitely wouldn't describe myself as a conformist in as much as a revolution is a reaction to something uh, that exists or some sort of conformity, mm. perhaps I... I think a revolutionary can be somebody who just creates something that's brand new. Yeah, if we can make something that's brand new. Mm. We can yeah. get to that later. We can talk about postmodernism a little bit. No, we won't. No. We're not going to do that. <laughs> we don't want to get into that. <laughs> yeah. The first ever class of furniture design at University of Tasmania, that's pretty interesting. There's some awesome teachers there and really that first class lots of really interesting people too yeah that was a really special time i think that was 1983 and at that particular you know you think i was a teenager through the 70s uh, which you know was such a reaction to the 60s come that early 80s there was you know politically that was the period of bob hawke's arise you know to uh, Mm. the scene in australia well politically at any rate 
there was all the um, environmental battles taking place at the Franklin in Tasmania, mm. um, and that really sort of gelled as a national kind of environmental. Movement. Maybe we should touch because this is important, sort of on an Australian national level. But people who are international listening to us, they wouldn't have a clue what the Franklin yeah. is. Maybe you could just okay. Touch well, on the Fra- the Franklin River um, is a river in the southwest of Tasmania, which is um, it's now um, a World Heritage Area. And there was, at the time, uh, in the 80s, a, a proposition from the, the Liberal government at the time and the Hydroelectric Commission in Tasmania, which were bound together, to dam the Franklin River for another hydro scheme. And this was, this was probably the point where Dr Bob Brown rose to such national prominence. He'd already been involved in the fight for Lake Pedder, which preceded that. The same area, same part of Tasmania, but then the Franklin really gelled as a, as a mm. national concern environmentally. And so I was actually drawn down to Tasmania at, at the time of that particular protest that was taking place. No way, is that right? Uh, and went down there with my girlfriend at the time, yeah. uh, Michelle. So we were involved in, the, in those protests, and at the same time, it just sort of connected for us to make a shift and because we had been living in Sydney. Did you grow up in Sydney? You're yeah, grew up yeah. in Sydney and then you know, went to, applied to art school, mm. went to art school at the same time. So that was the kind mm. of, you know, mm. the grounding reasons of, of mm. being there in Tassie. What happened when Bob Hawke was elected in 83, he stopped that dam being built and yep. that was part of his electoral platform. Yep. And then for the next, uh, you know, decade after that, there was a really heightened political interest in the resource battle that was going on within Tasmania from forests as well as the hydroelectric mm. schemes. And I guess that the kind of environment of the teaching that um, I was fortunate enough to be a recipient of, you know, th- these were the kind of things that were being discussed and in the psyche of the, the mm. creative fields at the time. And uh, yeah, I had fantastic opportunity as far as the teachers I was exposed to. You know, John Smith, who was an English furniture designer who moved out to Tasmania. Peter Taylor, who was a sculptor. Mm. Uh, Kevin Perkins, mm. another Tasmanian furniture mm. designer maker. Uh, these were the kind of driving forces of that course. And, and big names in Australian they, furniture design. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and. It was also part of their, you know, growing and evolution too. So mm. they were, yes, they were big names and they were becoming bigger names mm. through all of that. And it attracted, yeah, a really interesting group of students that we all, you know, sometimes you get that dynamic where everyone mm. drives each other. It was a mm. small group, there were about mm. seven of us going through mm. a four-year degree and everyone was just... 100% into it, mm. spurring each other on. I remember seeing a photograph of that class and um, oh, I know that person, I know that person, uh-huh. I know that person, yeah. I know that person, they've done this and that and all. Da, 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 da. Yeah. And everyone's gone in different directions but all mm. linked to that, yeah. that sort of same mm. area of education. That's interesting, you went to Tasmania for those protests. Mm. I see those protests as em- emblematic of a change in Australia's consciousness. Yeah. So prior to those dams being built in a wilderness area where very hostile to humans, exquisite yeah. landscape, our Australian land was seen as something to... Take what imp- you wanted. Take what you want. <laughs> yeah. Rope and pillage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But after... Yeah. those protests after the Franklin Dam was in it saved it was it was seen as something that had value in its own right yeah 
and look at the spin-off that's you know it's obviously you know it's always going to be a continuing battle to protect these kind of areas mm. however the whole image of tasmania the clean mm. green mm. it spins off into every other aspect of productivity mm. whether it's mm. furniture design or mm viticulture mm, you know mm. any of the agrarian kind of industries the fishing it's mm. it's all connected to this mm. idea of this is a clean green part of the world and you know that in itself it's sort of built on these kind of political decisions that help protect them i mean i'm horrified we, we're still seeing these kind of you, you can never let your guard down with no. this kind of protection no, you put the you proposals in the you know, great australian bite mm. right now we've got mm. for oils and you know it's something that the legacy that it goes on mm. from these decisions lasts mm. the next 50, 100 years. Yeah. Mm. I think the legacy is deeper than we perhaps know. I've spoken to some farmers and they see themselves as custodians now. Yeah. And I think if we spoke to farmers in the 1980s, I think they'd see themselves as producers. Yeah. I'd like um, if somebody can write in. Mm. rectify my thoughts about that but I know that ideas of farming has changed radically mm. maybe it's a spin-off of that I don't know it's certainly a spin-off of people changing their ideas of how Australia is as a country and yeah. I think how the world is as a place yeah. a place where we which we inhabit and the designer makers cult was a pretty interesting place too and you're foundation member of that or mm-hmm. helped set it up can you yeah that that actually started we started that as a group of students who were coming to the end of our student years and we were all yep. we all wanted to actually take this forward and be professional designer makers so how to do it you know we could, yep. couldn't envisage running off doing it individually and everyone setting up their own individual work you know all the costs and we saw the collective value of working together pooling our resources not only on financial and practical areas, but also because we had a creative dynamic that where we fed off each other and, you know, the energy, we just wanted it to keep going. And it was the first uh, Designer Makers Cooperative in the country. Uh, mm. So to set that up was that we needed to have 15 of us and we expanded mm. beyond the core group that we had of furniture and wood-related artists to mm. we had uh, ceramicists and jewelers and mm. textiles you know we, we sort of gathered a collective of people mm. and uh, applied for some government funding mm. grants to help set up bought mm. machinery uh, rented buildings uh, that we could sort of house our studios in and we had an active exhibition program for the first few years where we would all work not only on exhibition work but we could we also sort of became a kind of a central pool so we could generate commissions um, and op- you know commission opportunities would then come to the designer mm. makers co-op and interestingly it's still going today mm. which is astonishing it, mm. it's taken different you mm. know obviously like anything that lasts a long time goes through waves and rhythms mm. I think it I'm not actually sure what it's called now. It might be DOT, I think, or which is designed that objects sounds, Tasmania. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's 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 gone on to evolve, but I think essentially it has still been a feeder for people from graduating from art school to then go into this next stage of professionalism. And for some, it's they've stayed in groups for longer, and others yeah. have been there in a shorter period of time. It's yeah. it, it's it's an interesting model. There are places where people that are graduating can come and work in Australia. Yeah. In fact, internationally there are. You know quite a few international yeah. spaces. 
But a co-op is something that's like a community. Yeah. You're all joint owners. You're joint owners of it. And people are going to come and go Mm -hmm. and it's going to have a life of its own. It's, how do you, how do you think about the notion of a community of, of makers and designers? Do you see yourself as part of a a big wide community? I do. I guess my sense of community has changed at different times. At that Mm. point, it was quite a, um, an intensive, condensed sense of community where you were connected with each other every day almost. Mm. Tasmania tends to be like that as a smaller island community anyway. Mm. There's this real sense of connection with everybody mm. and, you know, mm. like-minded people are attracted to live there mm. and, you know, there's sort of common goals. Uh, my sense of community shifted. Well, I have, you know, I, I have four children, so I have this kind of inbuilt sense of community within a family structure yeah. anyway. But later on when I came to live in South Australia, which was... In the late nineties, so kind of ten years plus. No, it's more it, more than that. It's yeah, fifteen, it was fifteen, yeah. sixteen years later. And I was one of the. I came and started working at the jam factory, yeah. uh, running yeah. the furniture studio, and that's where I met you. That's right. Yeah. Um, I remember the day you walked into that furniture oh, yeah. studio. Uh-huh. <laughs> we better just mention what the jam factory is and what sure. it was then, perhaps. Well, the the jam factory, I think, now has been operating for almost fifty years, set up from the Don Dunstan days. Yep. Don Dunstan was a Premier of South Australia, very progressive in the 1970s and seen as a shining light of progressive politics. And And he had a vision where he could see the value that art, craft and design uh, made to the broader community, not only from a cultural perspective, but also an economic and social perspective. He was a visionary thinker and had the foresight to think that this would be a valuable resource for the future. Built the Adelaide Festival, which is huge. So, you know, thankfully, it's, you know, you can go back to people like Don like Bob Brown, these visionaries who can actually sort of coalesce that energy and that vision and we're we're all benefits. And lead it too. It seems to me that it is important to have some sort of leader like that. Would it have happened without somebody like Don Dunstan? We don't know. It's a moot point. But say the designer makers co-op in Tasmania, which I reckon is pretty unique. You know, would that have happened without any political support? That's right. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't. These things can't. There's got to be a whole range of things that come into effect all at the same time to make things work. And timing timing and context is kind of everything, isn't it? Whether you're talking about personal relationships or, you know, bigger communal decisions. It's, uh, yeah. But just to get back to your question, the Jam Factory now, uh, it's moved. It's been in two different locations. It's yeah. now centred yeah. right in the CBD area yeah. of Adelaide. And it has uh, four different studios there's a hot glass ceramics uh jewelry and metals and a wood furniture design studio those have changed over the years some have been constant there was at various times a textile department was it Uh, that was before furniture furniture started in the early 90s and actually the first head of furniture was dave atterton who was one of my student colleagues and one of the original people out of the designer makers co-op so David, I think, was there for about three years at the start of it. And then Donald yeah. Fortescue, who was a colleague of yours through he art was... school. And then I was after Don. Yep. And then there's been a string of heads after that. The Jam Factory isn't a co-op, though. It's a government-funded body, and Absolutely. you can go and work there, but it's not... Yeah, but I, I think actually the reason I brought that up was you're just 
responding to your question about community. Yep. And that, that is a community that's there for a whole lot of reasons. Look, but it totally is, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it is a community. And I, I feel like a person that's come through that community too. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like uh, I'm a person that's come through the Canberra School of Art community. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, these things have long tentacles, don't they? You don't, you don't sort of just cut yourself off from these communities. They, mm. You can be closely aligned to them and then you can have some distance, but there's mm. always these kind of strands. I'm actually of the opinion that we want to foster these communities. I think yeah. the support from within the community for that community is, yeah. is important. I agree, and I think the lineage of those communities is really important too. It's like, you know, it's like any family structure, like elders, like, mm. you know, like that, mm-hmm. you know those, that sense of history, that mm-hmm. understanding, that the new blood, the new generation, all that mm. stuff, I think is so important. They're all connected. Mm. Mentoring. Yeah. Being a mentee and yeah. a mentor at various stages in your career. Yeah, yeah. And, and vice versa, it's really important to be inspired and challenged by the new thinking. Yeah, yeah, right yeah that's thinking. it. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, Revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I'm just going to get back to it because you're asking about community and one of the big things I learned from my three years at the jam which wasn't a very long time but three and a half really intense years they're pretty intense yeah i learned so much from the glass community and watching how the glass uh community had this global sense of networking and community and i'd come out of this sort of much tighter community in tasmania and working on a scale of objects that always just there was a practical issue of when I saw the glasses working with these amazing connections all over the world I just clearly remember thinking why can't I do that and then I was like well I can do that you can and as soon as I it changed my thinking as soon as I changed my thinking then these opportunities obviously started to started to be I could even see them whereas before I couldn't even see them and then one thing led to another and it turned in that I have had some you know pretty extraordinary experiences on a global level yeah that's right and so now my community is a very far-reaching network yeah. and it's i don't necessarily see people all the time but no. I'm, i feel very connected you know let's go back uh, right to the start were you always tinkering and making things when you were a kid no not, not at all my i grew up in a musical household did you my um all of oh, I'm one of five kids, youngest of five kids. We all had to learn instruments. The music was a big part of our life, and it was. Was your mum or dad a musician? Yeah, my father. Well, they were both uh, involved in music. My father became more and more involved. Well, he was involved at different times. He was the ABC recitalist, Bushby recitalist in London when he was a young man. Mm. Uh, piano, I don't know what that is. Piano and organ, right, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah. then he played organs a lot throughout his life. As in his later life, he, he suffered from a really debilitating arthritis where your joints oh, go sideways no, and your fingers. That's terrible. And he could no longer play the piano. So he shifted to playing the carillion, which yep. I don't know if you know a carillion. I do know what a carillion is. It's the bells, yeah. Mm. Okay, so. And you, you hit them. You do. You hit the so keys. It's the same keyboard as a piano, yep. right? But it's, yep. you sit on a, a bench that's yep. kind of 15, 20 feet long. And you slide up and down with all these pegs, and you wear leather guards on your yep. on your hand, and you it's very physical, and you yep. just whack the the pegs, and they it goes up. The bells stay still, but the yep. clapper hits the bell. Yeah? Yep. So how many Carillions are in the in there in the world? 
about five. <laughs> no, you'd be, you'd be amazed. There's many. He used to um, travel the world. He would Did be he? invited to play Koreans in different countries. Oh, right. um, so he, yeah, he really had some significant, uh, you know, bell ringing opportunities, Go and that on. took him on right into the latter years of his life. So yeah, okay. But that getting back to that question, I guess we were all. My upbringing was really much more music focused and also the outdoor environmental mm. wilderness experience mm. and hence the yeah that brings you back to going to Tassie in those yeah, early days and I yeah. think it was you know partially ingrained by my parents that mm. was the sort of way we were brought up we mm. were always out bushwalking so I it sort of I was never involved in like a making things that was mm. you know making music is pretty creative though yeah the difference with yeah. music and say objects yeah. is quite fundamental. Music is here and then it's not. Yeah, it's quite instantaneous. Absolutely. Whereas an object, it's so pure. To me, in, in, to me it's it's totally pure. The purity of it. And it's, uh-huh. But if you're going to make an object, yeah. you've got an outcome in mind. Music can never last more than that instant. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's recordings and. But it it's still be, instantaneous. It's like our yeah. voices. Like it, yeah. it's just uh-huh. you can't touch yeah. it. You can't sort of say, "Oh, yeah. I'm going to investigate that moment of music for the next five minutes or something." You can't yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got to investigate that whole yeah. five minutes of music. Yeah. And maybe um, there is yeah. a parallel between an object and music, but it is. I think there's a fundamental difference. It's a really interesting thing to think about. That uh, I've gone through. A bunch of different ways of working as far as making objects and I still do to a point mm. um, at once upon a time I was very clear about this is what I'm going to make I'll yep. do drawings make models figure yep. it all out with then the making became just as kind of a process to realize that idea right? um, and with some objects now like for, for making surfboards it's clearly there's a whole method and I know what I'm doing first and everything but what I enjoy more than anything, and I'm doing it more and more these days, is making sculptural works that yeah. I actually have no idea what I'm going to make, even as I start. Yeah. So I've used a lot of found materials, mainly wood, uh, but it becomes every type day I go into the workshop, it's like an adventure because the piece just grows organically. Mm. It's It's more like music in that mm. sense that... Uh, you know, I don't actually know where I'm headed with it, mm. and it changes each time I go in the workshop. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. You know, that's the most exciting way to work. The outcomes are really fluid. Yeah, and it's the yeah, it's the, actually the whole process of mm. of creating it that is the really mm. enjoyable bit. Yeah. I reckon there'd be people out there that would be very nervous and have a high anxiety about not having an outcome. Yeah. I reckon there'd be yeah. people that would have a high anxiety about having a rigid outcome. Yeah. And um, yeah. being able to traverse all of that is a, it's just a method of thinking, isn't it? Yeah. A way uh, of thinking about the process, a way of thinking about, oh, this is what I'm going to try and achieve here. Yeah. Was there a moment when you were inspired to start making things? Like, a, did you meet somebody or was yeah. there an event? Yeah, there was a few things, actually, that I guess after I left school, I, you know, just didn't know what I wanted to do really and I spent about four years doing a whole variety of different jobs but and my fallback job was always I was a cleaner I would clean in school high schools mm-hmm. and clean in supermarkets and I could do both of those jobs the night the, the high school job were night times the supermarket ones started really early 4 or 5am you had to be out by 7 
and at the time I was a you know 18 to early 20s and mm. I was going surfing a lot and yeah. it just fitted my lifestyle <laughs> and at that time too except I said when the surf was up at 5 a.m then you yeah and I could just do a job like that for three months too mm. and mm. save up pretty good money at the mm. time mm. and then I could quit and mm. I'd go on a camping surf trip you know mm. away for six weeks or a few mm. months or whatever I could afford and then I'd come back and I'd get another one Mm. And one year I um, came back after doing this for years and uh, I applied for the cleaning job and the guy said to me, well, he looked at my track record and mm. I had the interview, told him what I'd done and he said, oh, you've had a great, you know, you've done some fantastic things, it sounds really good but we don't want you because mm. you're just going to leave, you know. Mm. Mm. And it was, it really shocked me to think, mm. man, I can't get a cleaning job that I'm yeah. experienced in. Ah. And that was kind of a point where I thought, actually, I'm going to, I want to get a training, you know, I want to yep. develop a skill and an interest. Yep. At the same time as those cleaning jobs, I'd also had the, a really good fortune to get a job for a guy called Ian Smith, who was a, his background was a ceramic artist from South Australia, actually, but it was right. in Sydney, and he worked yep. in a, a boat shed, building small boats, fiberglass boats, dinghies, yep. repairing yachts, yep. and making playgrounds for playground animals for kids really playground and he sort of a sculptor sculptor yeah he was a sculptor and so this was just an incredible opportunity to work with him and I lived on his boat that was moored out in the harbour how terrible was that it was fantastic (laughs) I'd row in and work in the workshop all day and then I'd make it Uh, and I learnt so much you know the main thing was he was just so inspiring because he was somebody who who just did whatever he wanted to, you know. Yeah, Obviously, yeah, it was, yeah, there was yeah. way more complexity to it. Yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah. But he he was fantastic, and he uh, he was very inspirational to me. And he yeah. always he sort of drove in it to me that if you ever want to do something, just do it yeah. and apply a little bit of the percentage of all your energy into making money out of it. But yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like money wasn't the driving force; it was the yeah. experience. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So he kind of really inspired me. Um, yeah. And at one point, he one of his ideas was to develop um, this new f- oyster farming technique uh, of having suspended cages yep. of floating pontoons rather than in racks. And yep. So this was in the eighties, about eighty one or something. Um, 1980. So that was quite a revolutionary style of oyster farming at the time. And so, and he'd hot bought into a lease up at Southwest Rocks on yep. the New South Wales coast. And yep. I went up and spent about four months up there with one of his colleagues who was a 55 year old Irishman who'd sailed solo around the world. So, quite God, an eccentric right. character. Yeah, yeah. And we lived up there and built these pontoons and started the oyster farming lease for him. And then from there, I uh, I had this, you know, he was a very eccentric guy. We lived sort of, I lived in the back of my VW. He lived in a caravan. We would just ate steamed veggies every night and listen to Christian Murphy tapes, you know. Like, big beard. Did you ever shower? Yeah, long, long hair, beard, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and he, yeah, he was really into this Indian guru called Krishnamurti, which okay. we listened to. I think I've heard, mate, would I have heard of that? 
And I had, fortunately, I had the good fortune of going to school in India as a kid for one year. Yeah. Get back to that. Yeah. Anyway, so after the oyster farming, my kind of plan was to go back to India and you know, yep. find myself and all, yep. all that kind yep. of stuff. Uh, and I did. I went back to India for about four months at that point. But one of the another clarity point for me was I went to a, a, an ashram in Pondicherry uh, mm. down in the south, and I walked in, and I, it was just a, a moment of like I don't want this at all, you know. Oh, um, fire, yeah. You know, India. I don't know if you've ever been there. But it's pretty confronting. It's an amazing yeah. country, but there's life and death happening on the streets. Yeah. And you're sort of kind of literally walking over people dying to go into an ashram that was full of to you know, find yourself Westerners. Yeah, exactly. That were <laughs> were there to try to seek mm. to find peace and you yeah. know bliss and everything. First and I don't this at all. I want to expect to throw at me, and I checked out, walked out. I didn't even stay yeah, really. more than half an hour. It was yeah, just right. like. Well, at least you found you didn't find yourself there, I suppose. Yeah, I I completely did. It was like, this is not what I want. Knowing what you don't want is pretty important. At least you gave it a go. Gave it a go, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm a big believer in actually making attempts at things. In fact, recently I've been thinking that um, it's the attempt that's important. Mm. It's the trying. It's the process. I mean, outcomes do matter depending, you know, different severity of things and consequences that can happen. Part of that That, process is an outcome. Yeah. What about teaching? So you've obviously been inspired by Ian Smith and people like... Teaching is something I kind of fell into it. It it evolved. It was nothing I ever really set out to to be a teacher. What about the philosophy as teaching? I'm just wondering about learning by YouTube or do you think that People teachers matter. Like, say somebody comes up to you and say, this is what I want to learn. Would you say, oh, there's a really good website. Mm. There's a re- This is the dude on YouTube he should yeah. be following and subscribe to. What do you reckon you'd say something? That person over in Seattle, Adelaide, New York, London, is the guy that you should go and work yeah. with. Yeah, I think if, if you're talking about learning something specific... Mm. then that's a way to go. You know, mm. technology today, you can get any information that mm. you need is, mm. is online mm. and you can actually track down the people who are specialists in certain areas so mm. I think you can get to like really specified particular mm. information if you want to and you can learn that way my I guess my approach to teaching has never been dictatorial in that way that I've got something that you can learn from me I'm not sure I'm a good teacher you know I've, I've been involved in teaching a lot yeah. But you I, can't be too bad because you keep getting employed. But I'm actually well, wondering whether or not... I'm wondering, look, if you put yourself in the mindset of somebody just starting out in any creative field, do they need a teacher? Do they need a mentor? Do they do they need a person? They, well, they don't need them, right? Because I think there's a multitude of ways you can go about anything. And that's where I think as a teacher, I don't, I don't feel like I'm driven to impart a specific way of doing things. And I approach everything like this because I always Mm. feel like, okay, I know a certain amount and Mm. I know things from my own experience and what people have taught me or what Mm. I've learned in various ways, but it doesn't mean it's the way. A teaching could not only be, it could take a mentorship role, but it could also just take a reflective role. Like you can Mm. just, you're a sounding board, you're a way whenever we have an idea or 
you have a conversation or a discussion with somebody, mm. that's where your mm. ideas sort of move forward. As a guide. Perhaps, yeah. And not even a guide as to this is the way, but just uh, as a guide, a companion, it's someone, mm. you know, I, I can think of like actually teaching kids to ride a bike, for example. We used to run down, you know, to get them up on two wheels, mm. you'd run on either side of them, shouldering them up, you know, as they went to fell over until they just got more and more momentum yeah, and then yeah, they're, yeah, they're off. Right? Yeah, yeah, and that, that's kind of, I, I kind of view teaching like that. It's like yeah, running yeah. along next to whoever yeah. the student is yeah, yeah. and it, it's not being in front saying do it this way or no. come this way. But in the creative fields, I think there's a difference between, you know, science and engineering and, and the arts that there's well, a different way of going about these things. I 100% know that there is. Yeah. Being creative is yeah. a skill that can be learned and depends on how you want to learn it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's an attitude, you know, so yeah. it's a way of looking at the world. What about tertiary qualifications? Do you recommend getting it? If you, if you were like uh-huh. starting out, do you reckon just do it? Like find out, you know, get on the subscribe yeah. to the right YouTube channel find out, go, ring up people or whatever, or do you need to go and like study in a... You don't need to. You, you know, there's a, any number of ways you can learn. The tertiary way is one way, and it's... But I'm, I'm actually curious to know whether or not it's a benefit to a career. I think it can be, definitely. Mm. You know, the benefits are not only in what you might learn from both your fellow students and whoever's yeah. teaching at the institution, yeah. But it's also the benefit of learning about the, the field, the broader yeah. field. And, you know, there's a yeah. lot of information in tertiary yeah. institutions about it. Yeah. It's also to do with uh, positioning yourself, you know, the kind of the networks, the, yeah. the, the people you meet, the, the way society actually views uh, mm. people that have achieved qualifications. Mm. It's not necessarily even that specific qualification, no. but it's just the idea of someone being... Yeah qualified it also yeah. means that they've been through a certain process they've yeah. gone through a whole evaluation system they yeah. can make decisions so i i think there are, the idea of a tertiary education is a wonderful thing it whether or not it's you know valuable to everybody i, yeah. I think there's also you know incredible ways you could be self-taught you can learn yeah. through practice you can learn yeah. through, you know yeah. it's not the only, it's definitely not the only way to go it's yeah. definitely not is it i think there's a sense of lifelong learning as well so as we yeah. progress there are times we're going to university or to get a certificate or a diploma or a degree of something would be of great benefit and they're also yeah. but that doesn't mean you stop at that point you just yeah. keep learning and learning and learning in fact for me if i'm not learning i'm bored yeah i totally agree Mm. yeah i feel more like a a learner than a teacher that's my permanent state have you ever felt that like when you're teaching you're actually learning all the time all the time all the time what about um you've started your first business got to get your first clients Mm. how did that come about that came about pretty much through the designer makers co-op Yep. So we, our group all graduated in uh, at the end of 1986. Yep. We had the co-op up and running yep. like early 87 because we, in our last year, we set all the steps in motion to get a building and funding yeah, and everything. Right. And in the Art and Public Places scheme, which at the time was in Tasmania, had a certain percentage of any new yep. building, government building had to have an art yep. uh, content. And one of these commissions came to the co-op 
Yep. And so we set up an internal competition <laughs> and adjudicated it ourselves. Like oh, it was yeah. kind of really, you know. You wouldn't want to tread on anyone's toes, would you? <laughs> well, you wouldn't, but at the same time, we were all like, yeah, it's just you know, so we brand all new, put in it? proposals for it, yeah, and then we yeah, all yeah. sat around and discussed it, and yeah, we all yeah. arrived at, actually, this is probably the, the strongest one for this particular thing. Yeah, yeah. And so another guy, Neil Campbell and I, yeah. um, we got the job. And so yeah. this was a sculptural playground for a, a, a school in southern Tasmania. Fantastic. So that was our first job. Yeah, yeah. wow. Did you have to, like, worry about insurance? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We had to... Yeah, it was a big learning curve. Plus, we were dealing with not only the group dynamics of the co-op, how to get that to work first, but then there was an arts body that were commissioning. There was a school and education department. There were friends and parents associations. It was, like, incredibly complex. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so we learned a great deal out of that. And at the same time, I was just, you know, I was just hell-bent on actually wanted to be a studio artist. That's how I wanted to make a living. And had small kids, had two kids at that point who were born during that art school years. Yeah, wow. Uh, that would have been pretty tough just finance. very wise. intense, yeah. God. And so, um, and started making small objects, chest of drawers, these yeah. just kind of carved yeah, right. particular type of um, thing and that they were small enough I could send them around to different galleries around the country and competition all those sort of things and it was a way of I could generate um, a bit of a profile for myself it it actually as it turned out there was an exhibition that we as a co-op had at the Beaver Galleries I think it was in 87 which is the capital of Australia Yeah. yeah and I had one of these chests of drawers and then also some chairs from that I designed in art school which yep. very art school you know uh, in that exhibition and the actual managing director of Chiswell Furniture who were yep. at the time were Australia's largest furniture company yep. of, of wooden furniture he came through the exhibition bought the chest of drawers got in yep. contact with me yep. said if you can do that kind of work and that kind of work we're thinking about using an outside designer for the first time. This is a sixth-generation yeah. furniture company from the yeah. UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, would I be interested? And, and you said no. Well, I, I said I would be interested, but <laughs> we got bogged down. Right, oh, God. Over, just, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, no. you know, like late 20s or yeah. something. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I had all this kind of rubbishy ideas about, you know, being a designer and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we we kind of got mixed up in con- legal contracts, uh, just to a ridiculous extent that it yeah. went nowhere. And I can't remember, but I think James rang me up about six months later, yeah. or could have been longer. And we just had a phone conversation, and we both agreed that look, we both really want to do this. Let's forget all the because all the legal contracts went into what happened if this and who, who owned that and everything. So we just had a, an agreement over the phone that we should, yeah, let's forget all that other stuff. We trust each other, let's give it a go. Turned into an incredible opportunity. I spent five years as a design consultant for them. They were amazing, you know. Mm. I, I, I worked out of Tasmania. I've worked mm. on probably over 70 or 80 different design ranges, mm. ideas. Mm. I would just, they would put me on a retainer. I would send in a invoice at the end of each month as to how yep. much design work I'd done royalties on sales like it, yeah, was, it was just an extraordinary generous way of working from their yeah. point of view and they 
He said, Mike, we want to fly you. Come with me. We're going to these exhibitions yeah. in Germany and in yeah. America. We want to educate you about the manufacturing yeah. industry. So they're kind of investing in they you. They totally invested. Yeah. And it was a, it was great on a couple of reasons. One, by that time I had, I'd had four children, right? Yeah. And it was a good stable income yeah. still living in Tassie in our yeah. preferred lifestyle tapping into all of that so that was wonderful I learned a great deal about the furniture industry as it was at that time but the biggest thing I learned out of it all was that I didn't want to be involved in it and this is a that's it, so curious this, this is, is really like the Pondicherry ex- yeah, experience too, yeah isn't it? it is again but I can't, it's one of those tricky things too that we all end up being bought by you know necessity don't we? you know you mm. might have to have money coming in have to yeah. do this I never felt really that comfortable about um, designs I was doing actually didn't really reflect me I was you know I was fitting a mould of what a company wanted and their marketing and all these sort of things that's that is in fact what a designer needs to do yeah that's part of their job yeah and I would think there'd be plenty of people out there that would just revel in that yeah oh, and I wonder yeah. in Australia whether or not there's any jobs for that at all for designers a designer in... to work with a manufacturer oh I think there's many I mean industrial yeah. design companies all manufacturers you know, need designers yeah. like, no I think there's plenty but I think it was for me I think that that that's where a distinction between a designer and an artist lies is that right. the designer is responding to all these needs. I mean, it's not to say that artists aren't responding to needs, but mm. there's a different uh, kind of focus on what it's about. Yeah, yeah the artist is responding yeah. to a self-expression fundamentally and yeah. the designer is responding to a series yeah. of criteria. And designers are often, in manufacturing tenses, are designing for quite often mass manufacture yeah it's not always I suppose but therein again lies a really you know it's a conundrum for me like you've got to really think about that we're just drowning in objects in the world <laughs> do we need more <laughs> you know um, yeah, and there's many arguments yeah. to that isn't there yeah. there's already enough love songs do we need another love song yeah. you know they yeah, come out yeah, all the yeah. time do we yeah. need another chair design yeah how do we look at that but for me, I guess I, I felt a couple of things. I, I felt totally privileged to be, I would fly up from Tassie, go through the factory. There were 300 people working in the factory in less than what I thought were ideal conditions because I was used to living in the pristine Tassie. And there was, I don't know, there was something in it to me that was like, I just don't even want to be a part of this system where yeah. I'm Gosh. enjoying this and it's driving an industry that I don't necessarily approve of and yeah. producing a whole lot of objects that I don't you know, the world doesn't need them yeah. you know so that yeah, for yeah. me it was like this is another point I, and since then I haven't I've been involved in some small scale design yeah. for manufacture since yeah. but I'm not interested in mass manufacture and yeah. I, I think it's a huge thing to think about if you're designing yeah. if you're in that you've got to do your work do you really see a value in what you're designing? It seems to me that you've made decisions in your career based on a sense of ideals as opposed to a sense of financial necessity, make the most of money you can, doesn't matter how you do that. That doesn't seem to be be how you made your decisions. It's not, yeah. That's not what I base my decisions on. That's so super interesting. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people involved in the kind of field we are operate on that level. 
I don't know if it's the right advice or not, but I've always said with all my kids, you know, that when everyone's growing up and they're sort of questions of what am I going to do, yeah. all those kind of, you know, which we all face. I've always felt, well, you've got to be mindful of money, but don't chase money because you'll never have enough. And that's very possibly bad advice. <laughs> but, I think we have to ask your kids about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they might say it's bad advice because they all, you know... Yeah. They all say, "Oh, we grew up poor," which I don't think they did, but they might have. They might think they did, you know. I think they grew up really rich in experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a difference between. So, uh, I want to just touch base on you. You spend t- a lot of your time teaching and working on student projects. Are there some really interesting projects that the students are doing right now? Yeah. Well. Yes, I think all students' projects are actually really interesting for them right now because that's one of the interesting things of having been involved in teaching for about 20 years now. Even seeing the same ideas, and you do see a certain amount of repetition of, of mm. issues that people want to explore and you know discover, it's different every single time. Mm. So because it's important to that person at the mm. time. And there's definitely been a big shift in the sort of general consensus of what's important sustainable issues now are very prevalent in a lot of thinking whereas they wouldn't have from been a, necessarily 20 from years from an institutional point of view or from a like no a from underground from the student from the student's point yeah. of view and of course people are all you know they're still always wanting to acquire skills and they're thinking yeah. of their own way forward through this yeah. you know. so you're working with Chiswell and you're thinking to yourself I don't mm. want to partake of this system seems that the students that you're teaching, I, su- I suspect they're young, but they don't have to be, do no, they? Yeah, they're not all. Yeah. They're not all young. Yeah. yeah, so they're coming to the table with ideas that match yours. And uh, I wonder when they leave sometimes. and they're going to... Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering if it's yeah. if there is something out there as a, as a thing in design and, and architecture and art. Mm. It's, it's, I don't know. Are, are, are these people going to go and work at the Chiswells of today, for instance, and they're going to say, no, nah, yeah. we're not doing that. Yeah. No, nah, we're going to take it somewhere else. Well, I would hope so. I mean, I, I, I don't, I definitely not at, at all intend to get the wrong idea that I'm vilifying that Chiswell experience. It, it was just one of the things that I mm. learned. Mm. But it also is something that I've carried through as something to continually yep. think about. Because that was an amazing experience and it yep. provided me with so much valuable information and yep. and wonderful things as well. A, yep. a sense of community in a different way. Yeah. Uh, but it just made me question things a lot. If um, if we cast our minds into on a business sense, I'm curious when you're starting up your own little business, did you have a plan or an idea... <laughs> Or was it just organic? No, nah, it was completely organic and idealistic and yeah. head in the clouds. I'm not, I'm not a good businessman. Um, mm. you know, I'm not a businessman. In fact, yeah. I don't think in those terms. Yeah. Same time, I'm, if, you run a, if you have a family and run a household, yeah, you're gonna feed you them. run a business, you yeah. do. Uh, you know, when yeah. you think about it, and this is probably really important the way I look at business, is that your household is not all about the economics, is it? Yeah. You know, you've yeah. got to provide shelter, you've got to provide yeah. food, you've got well, to provide the yeah. basic financial thing to be able to live. But, yeah. it, but in actual fact, it's all about everything else. It's yeah. about value systems and ethics and guidance and conversations. That's what your family's about. So yeah, I actually have the same yeah. approach to 
anything Everything else, whether else, it's yeah. education or business or whatever. Gosh. So yeah. that's that's the way I sort of that's look at it. That's a super interesting. So the money thing is, yeah, yeah, but it's yeah. why I'm not a successful businessman because I, oh, I don't have that. I don't have except, a priority of money. Except, you know? Peter, what we can do right now is look out your windows and we can, oh my God, you know, what a beautiful view. Right? Well, that's true. But I feel like I'm coming back around to more need to feel activism about the state of the world, from the, nat- the natural world. You started out your career going to Tasmania it, to... Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this is a... I don't know what the answer is there. Um, it's not like you just suddenly drop everything and go, right, well, I mean, you could. You know, I've got mm. great respect for frontline activists, you know, yep. from Sea Shepherd to Greenpeace. I, you know, I think yep. they do wonderful, really wonderful things with their lives. That's not from my... I'm yep. not in that sort of realm Have of Have you activism. ever heard of a guy called Jordan Peterson? No. He's a public intellectual from the States, and yeah. he sees activists as just wasting their time. He's totally on a pathway of changing yourself, yeah, making yourself better. In fact, he's written a book called 12 Rules for a Good Life, I think it's called. Okay. Somebody's going to write it. I'll have to write this down later and get it. Yeah. Yeah. There goes a texter. But he sees activism as something that, well, why would you do that? Because to actually change the world is a very, very difficult thing. So you can change yourself. Become a vegan, for instance, or become a yeah. leave that job that's yeah. um, detrimental to to your life. Yeah. Well, I think activism has a great role to play. Not all activism has to be black and white for starters. It doesn't mm. have to be getting out there mm. and blockading or mm. things. Mm. But at the same time, that raises an incredible awareness, which many of us may not know about if there hadn't been mm. such a stunt, you know. Yeah, to, if there uh, weren't people chaining themselves to the trees. Well, yeah, know, all, of that, all of that kind of thing. So how, you know, how I can sort of bring this, my concern to the environment more yeah. into my own realm and how I can yeah. be an activist. I actually see that through the work I create, the way yeah. I create the work. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, it's microscopic isn't it in the in the big scheme of the world but yeah. it's, it's my little contribution i suppose mm-hmm. because i'm fortunate enough to be in uh, an education environment i can have conversations i can i can prop you know suggest ideas i can actually yeah. you know bring awareness to certain issues through yeah. that educational system yeah. and it's not forcing anyone to take them on but it's yeah. like well is this something we could should consider could we talk about it in this way could we talk do about you it? see that there's uh, an impending danger an impending apocalypse for our earth like if you if you were to be an activist for something what would that be uh, i don't know i think we're, you know, we're under threat so much at this point aren't we yeah. it's um i mean just pollution in itself you know where i went to a talk david suzuki a couple of years ago here and he was um he's a, a canadian yeah. environmentalist yeah. yeah and he was um he's in his 80s now and still yeah. driven he's yeah. a very yeah. inspiring character yeah uh and he just so clearly pointed out at the start of his talk you know if we stop eating you, you you're probably going to die in about four or five you know maybe mm-hmm. six weeks, but mm-hmm. you, your body's going to give up. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. If you stop drinking, chances are you're going to die in about four days. If we don't, if we stop breathing clean air, you've, got, you've probably got five minutes. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. And it was just such a, you know, yeah. it's such an important point of clarity. And now we're seeing things, we're hearing the latest scientific reports that plastic particles are being found yeah. in snow falling in Antarctica. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's plastic on the bottom trenches of the ocean. Like, yeah. you know, we've got a serious, you know, really serious problem. And yeah. we don't, we're not necessarily that aware of it here in Australia because we live in an incredible it's environment. It's pretty clean here, isn't it? Yeah. Incredibly clean. But yeah. you go to somewhere where it's not and yeah. you start to see the enormity and scale yeah. of it. Even the notion of you go to the sea, you go to the ocean and, oh, you breathe in fresh air. You know, we yeah. all think that's good for your health. Now the red tide, the algae blooms, that, yeah. you know, there's so much... Yeah pollution-driven particles coming up yeah. into the atmosphere that it's not necessarily even going to be healthy to breathe that air. It sounds extreme, but these are... And, you know, it's it's very hard to live a life the way you don't pollute. I mean, you, know, you, you just... But, you know, yeah. to be aware of these things and to yeah. be not contributing to them as much yeah. as we might otherwise be is yeah. important to me. You know? yeah. And that's yeah. where, like, coming back to making one-off individual objects that that's how you're sort of building it into your business and commissioning yeah. there's all this value that that goes with that you know yeah. like yeah. you don't if i commissioned you to make me a piece of furniture yeah i'm gonna yeah it'll cost me a bit of money and take a bit of time and yeah. we have to develop all this relationship to understand yeah. what i want and that yeah. you can give it to me and that yeah. that's rich that's also wonderful and that i will never throw that thing out because of the experience, the relationship we built while, while yeah. we were having that conversation, that all the skill and design and craftsmanship you've put into it, whereas something else that I might purchase with no connection, yeah. it might ha- find its own use by date. It's like well, it's just an object, and it's not worth you know. Yeah. It goes. I'm pretty yeah. convinced that it's the story that the objects have associated with them that yeah. we apply to them. Yeah. They they're not it's not like they're written on them. The objects that are special to us have a story associated with yeah. it. For instance, that bookshelf over there, you made it at this yeah. particular time in your life. and Yeah, there's a history, there's a, yeah. Or your collection of elephants or something. You've got a yeah. kind of a story that's associated uh-huh. with those, yeah. each and every one of those objects. And that's yeah. what's important. I agree. It's not the object, it's the story. You know what's really nice about that collection of elephants is that they're all gifts. Yeah. Right? So I'd never... Yeah collected or purchased an elephant yeah and it somehow it just started we're looking up probably i don't know i haven't counted there's a few, there's 50 or 60 yeah, yeah, elephants yeah. up there so and when yeah. family and friends and people see that yeah, yeah 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 then they might be traveling or whatever yeah. and they think oh I'll, I'll add that to peter's collection so yeah. it's just growing but it's all What's really nice about it is they're all gifts. And yeah, it's, I love it's that. Brilliant. Yeah. And they, it's a lovely little collection. It's not yeah. like, oh, this one's really super special. They're all special yeah. because they've... Yeah. How long did it take before you felt your practice was sustainable? Is, was there ever a sense that, you know, you had it all kind of wrapped up and you were kind of traveling no. pretty... No, mm-hmm. no. It's, it's always been a really fluctuating up and down... And lots know, of hard work. For me. Yeah. yeah. And so... My first, other than the, my cleaning jobs and the job for Ian Smith we mm. spoke about earlier, mm. my first job was the job at the Jam Factory. So yeah, I had, yeah. um, I think, 10 years of running my own studio. And that was a struggle, with, yeah. without a doubt. It, yeah. I had great these great experiences like the Chiswell things and, yeah. you know, and many other wonderful experiences, but yeah. it was definitely a, 
Australia. Was ne- never on top of it. Yeah. No. Um, four kids is a lot. To, yeah. You know. Yeah. Did you Did you ever have a, an opportunity where the mortgage was paid off and you? Oops. Uh, <laughs> we've got the lawnmower inside. Yeah. Is that going to bugger things up? Ah, uh, we can just plough on. That's a jackhammer, actually. <laughs> Let's just continue. Okay, go. That's all right. Yeah. Okay. For me, I think the biggest expense for anybody is the rent, the mortgage. You know, the food's yeah. kind of, it's it's there, but you can kind of, I yeah. think in Western societies anyway, it's we're kind of okay with that. Yeah. Did you ever have a situation where the mortgage was paid off, the rent no. needed need to oh, be paid? Well, no, I, we did, because... Um, well, it was very different circum, different time. So in the, in Tasmania in 1984, still an art school student, yeah. we bought 20 acres of land for $14,000. Bloody hell, from an art school. So you went to a bank as an art school as student. As an art school student. And, you and, say, and what they took as security was the fact that we were on what was called T's at the time. You're which, joking. Which is like the Centrelink payment you get for being a student. And I think that is like $100 a week. Yeah, and the bank, but the bank took that as a regular income. Far out. So we got a... And <laughs> bought 20 acres overlooking the Huon River. I mean, it, it's unbelievable, isn't it? So what we have to have everyone do right now yeah. is take press pause... Go onto Google Earth and have a look at the Huron River right yeah, now and yeah. just have a look it's at how gorgeous that is. Yeah. And at the same time, the government had the first homeowners grant, yeah, okay. which even back then, I mean, it was $7,000. I think it's still 7000 today. Is it? So when you think yeah. of the what $7,000 yeah. meant, then, we built our house to live in for $7,000. Yeah, right. It was a bit rough. Yeah. Like we had plastic stretched over the yeah. frames for windows. We'd, yeah. The toilet was a bucket and chuck it out in the paddock. Yeah. We'd dig holes. Yeah. We had, you know, it was, it was rough, but it, uh, we lived in that, built the house over, um, finished it over about four or five years, sold that, did it again with another house, yeah, and right. out of those two things, we had enough money to buy the next house that we moved to, which was at Clifton Beach in Tasmania, yeah. five acres of land with cash. Like, yeah, wow. That's how cheap real estate was back yeah, then. Yeah, 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 So yeah. at that point, we had no mortgage. Yeah. yeah. Was that the biggest boon in your whole life? Was that like, oh, I can I can take a deep breath now? It was fantastic, yeah. yeah. And it meant, yeah, well, other things could sort of happen. But then from there, we took the job at, at the jam factory, yeah. came up here, and then there was yeah, a lot of personal was, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it all fractured, yeah. yeah. I've never been mortgage-free since. <laughs> so let's say somebody's starting out, and I reckon it's pretty important. You, you can do a lot when you've got the house paid off or yeah. you don't have to pay rent and stuff. Yeah. It kind of really does take uh, a lot of pressure off. Yeah. I'm wondering whether or not it'd be worthwhile somebody doing a day job. Yeah, yeah. Depending what your priorities are, you know, what yeah. you want to do out of your work. For some people, yeah. and I totally relate to this, when I left art school, I, I just wanted to work full-time in my studio. So I, you know, would, would take on any commission to do it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And for some people, that's what they want to do. In which case, you don't want to take a day job on because that'll get, yeah. the, you know, you know yeah. what it's like. You've been totally. in your own studio yeah. for so There's long. no time left. Yeah. yeah. So you either give it 120% yeah. or... Yeah. Or on the other hand, you might have a, a different day job and keep your practice going, but it has different settings. Yeah, agendas. Yeah. I think 100% that you do what you need. Yeah. Don't get a day job. Yeah. Don't do it. 
yeah, I think it dilutes it down, and then you end up not doing. There's just yeah. yeah. There's no there's no energy left. Yeah. And if you're yeah. if you're hungry, yeah. you go and find. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go and seek it out. You you yeah. hunt down that person. You hunt down the mentor. You hunt down the client. You hunt down the whatever. Yeah. And as soon as the pressure's off, yeah, you won't do that. You'll yeah. stop. So the next question I've got here is: Having run a business for so long, what would your top three pieces of wisdom be for new people starting out? Do what you love is probably number one. If yeah. You, if you're going to be doing, it, make sure you love it because yeah. it's going to take every moment of yeah. your life yeah, to it. do it so yeah, if you yeah. don't love it you're Forget totally it. in the wrong yeah. business if, if, if it's not if you can think of I think if you can think of doing something else yeah then go and do that yeah, yeah. so I would say that I would also it's probably the worst bit of advice but I would say don't make money the priority <laughs> you know yeah. like you've got to be you know yeah. like I said earlier you just you will never have enough money. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter yeah. you know, how much yeah. you earn. You will never have enough. Yeah. So yeah, I think you really need to feed the other part. Feed you the know, soul. Feed yourself. Feed yeah. the creative exactly. spirit or whatever it is you want to call it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what else would be a bit of advice? I think yeah, um, if you can take the word should out of your vocabulary, it's oh, really helpful. Gotcha. If you can replace that with could. Yeah, it changes. What it I'd like to changes the way you think. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Should, must have, have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think they're important things. What we yeah. say, um, yeah. they yeah. do influence the way we think, and yeah. that's a killer for anything. Anyone in the creative yeah. field, yeah. as soon as you've said should, it be yeah. like well, that kills every mm. possibility you could think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's such good advice, I reckon. Yeah. yeah, if you've got any sense of anxiety, it'll be around those those words of should yeah. and have to and must yeah. have. So. All these expectations that you you put on yourself, that other yeah. people put on you. And yeah. If it's if that's the way it should be done, like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why can't it be done this way? Or I always did it like this, and that's yeah. the way I'm always going to do it. Well, no. Nah. Yeah. No, let's try some other different way that could yeah. be better. You've been making stuff for a long time, so I want to know how many fingers you've got. Yeah, I've got all ten. Pretty careful. So, yep. Careful maker. Yeah. Did you ever ever get close? Ever slip? Ever touched a? No. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. I've had probably one or two occasions where I've gone. That was stupid. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. And it was always to do with repetition. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I do remember actually coming very close to a table saw blade one time, oh. and it was just a, a careless, you know, picking up a yeah. cut or something like that. Yeah. It, you know, just we're doing things repetitively. You know, yeah. you go into some little mind yeah. zone. It's like driving along, and sometimes yeah. you realise how did I get here? So that's that's a thing. It's interesting. Like you know, I've had different machinery at different times and access mm. to machinery. I've now got a workshop studio space that's got minimal machinery mm. and that was a conscious decision a few years ago thinking well do I really want to invest in all that kind of a equipment again which dictates the type of way you work. If you can cut flat panels you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I've sort of reverted back to uh, uh, you know I'm 
really my favourite tools now are like a handsaw and a spoke shave. Oh, and, you know, yeah, it's so really cool. super old school, but it's it's also a f- complete engagement with the material through my hands. Uh, I enjoy, I really enjoy the making process. Yeah, of, yeah, of that yeah. kind of making. Whereas I don't really enjoy hanging on the end of a router and you know bending over a table saw. It, they've been fun at different times in yeah. my life, but I, now I, I'm not interested in that. And then there's all the new technologies CNC um, laser which I'm around because of the educational environments that I've been and I sort of get involved and see a lot of work being made that way personally again I'm not drawn to it I'm not interested in it and it's a very weird thing for me to see students who really have no they've got a fantastic understanding of the programs, the, the way of looking at possibilities which I can't even dream of, of mm. how things mm. can be done, but they don't, they don't understand that necessarily that the grain will change direction around that knot, because yeah. you, you can plug it all in through the CNC, it just plows through and does get these quite astonishing forms made, but they're, they're just, they're, they're, for me there's lacking something, like there's yeah. just, there's not even a knowledge of how the wood might have splintered if you went that direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, if that tool, like a spoke shave or a handsaw, is, is under your hand and yeah. you, you, every single stroke of that you can feel, it's a different, it is a different process. Yeah, That's which a, I enjoy, but maybe someone else doesn't. Yeah, that, 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 yeah. Yeah. I wonder, are like these people interested in using hand tools and they just haven't got access or they're just not well, interested? Well, yeah, that's or? true. I don't know. There's not, they're difficult environments to have sharp tools and yeah, know, good table hand tools saw, and then yeah. you have that in a group environment where, mm, you know, mm. it's just it's not necessarily and that the money that institutions want to invest in facilities yeah. like that. I think yeah. when you went through yeah. art school and when yeah. I did, yeah. there was a different economic climate there was a different cultural climate when you walk into a workshop or your studio what brings you the most joy well here it's my own space which I really enjoy Uh, you know having been involved in teaching for a fair while you always and I enjoy the interaction with people Mm. but it it means that I, I really appreciate my studio space where there is it's just me. Yeah, <laughs> I love yeah, that. It's yeah. a solitude. It's a peace. It's yeah, a, you know, yeah. my own time zone. So that's a nice balance. And I used to find, like going back to co-op days, I didn't want to be housed in the co-op entirely all the time. So yeah. I had my own studio, you know, at home with the kids yeah, right. and all that going on. But I would really cherish the sort of connectivity that would happen when I went up to the co-op for meetings, or yeah. I'd use the machinery that I didn't have at yeah. home studio so yeah. there's all this balance between the two things so right now it's a it's a pace, place of peace and solitude and, and exploration also, too because, I guess yeah because yeah. of the way I'm working now yeah. it's always an explorative day in there which I, I'm loving I, you yeah, know, right. we can walk in there later I'll show you all of what's going on because I have no yeah, idea yeah. where it's going but it's yeah, like yeah, fun yeah yeah, yeah. You know? gotta have faith in It'll take me somewhere, you know. Yeah. So I don't know if you're making surfboards, but you have made a lot of surfboards. And I just want to touch on this relationship you've got with surfboards. It's You've been really innovative in the design of these boards, but you use traditional materials. And I just wonder if you can talk about your design. Can you 
just yeah. tell us how they're made and what their def- yeah. differences and what the benefits yeah. are. Okay, well, they're hollow surfboards, so they're made of, of a, um, a skeletal frame that I make out of a marine ply, very yep. thin uh, marine ply, and then it's skinned top and bottom, the decks top and bottom with yep. polonia. Yep, which is a Chinese, originally a Chinese wood, now grown in plantations in yep. around Australia in various areas. But it's yep. as light as balsa wood, but yep. much stronger. Like you know, yep. balsa you can dent with your yep. thumb. Polonia, it's nice and hard, and yep. hard. And it grows super fast. Super fast, and it regrows. So it's got yep. a lot of yeah. There's a lot of positives to it as a as a particular resource. There's also negatives. For example, you know, as soon as you start introducing species and then have a monoculture going on, yeah. you know, how good is that? Uh, and what happens if Polonia escapes the, the, yeah. the fence so, that it's contained yeah. within? Yeah. It's, it's so same, fast growing. It comes back to the same problem with doing everything has to be done en masse, does it really? You know, yeah, it makes people money, but yeah, it would be much selective logging makes sense, whereas wiping everything else out doesn't. So plantation yeah. farming, I, I have the same kind of concerns about that it becomes yeah. then a monoculture and the effects on an ecosystem yeah. then are vast yeah. yeah but anyway get back to the surfboard so yeah. they're um <laughs> it's polonia on the decks and they're about six mils thick and i've arrived at that thickness as a there's a sort of a balance between the amount of spacing in the frame underneath yeah so that there's still enough support if you have a bigger frame gap you need a thicker deck you know as i've just sort of arrived at my own compromise area of thickness and then there are all the rails where there's compound curves in the rails so they're laminated up in sections about four strips and then they become hand shaped down Uh, and then the surfaces sometimes are treated differently so sometimes there might be inlay it's built into as i glue the deck up sometimes it could be a applied markings on top yep. sometimes it's burnt um, yep. you know, use the fire to scar it yep. so it's been a range of things like that people uh, can see these boards on your website yeah 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 walk, is yeah walk, walkersurfboards.com and there's probably about 30 or 40 different boards up on that so mm. I can have a look at uh, and they have an air vent in them right which allows the air pressure to release so when you because you you've built a box that traps the air if you you're out in the sun surfing the air expands yeah. and it's got to go somewhere and yeah. it, it'll end up cracking the wood if it yeah. overheats so uh, there's an air vent that you release when you come back in and it's incredible you know even a, an hour surf it'll come in you'll hear it go as yeah, you well. release the air but it's also you can get all sorts of vents that some yeah. that are barely visible and they yeah. breathe in and out and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm using a, a, a um a cockpit bung off a boat that yeah. I, I just like the aesthetic look of them and yeah. I like there's this something it's like a vintage car almost yeah. there's a thing about you've actually yeah. got to become part of this board if you want to use you know yeah, you've yeah, got yeah, to yeah. put the plug in take it out yeah, yeah. I like this next level of interaction that when you're riding one of these boards is it a different experience to riding yeah yeah it is because it's heavier and the best way to, to it's not very heavy but it is heavier than the phone yeah. board those things are incredibly light you know yeah. and they're designed for people you know surfing through the air and you yeah. know, doing airs and this kind yeah. of thing these wooden boards are not like that at all probably the easier you know if you were going rowing in a wooden boat compared to a, an aluminium dinghy 
you know, the different, like the dinghy or chop, yeah. chop, chop across yeah. the top, yeah. and the boat will cut through it, and the board's much the same. So yeah. it's just got that little bit of extra dig into the water with the yeah. weight. Yeah. They're quite smooth and silky underfoot, but they're very cruisy. They're not, you know, if you're a sort of performance surfer, it's, you don't get one, you know. Yeah, yeah. You've got a sore knee or something. Yeah. That and that's, that's probably pretty good, yeah. And if you don't, you'll have one once it hits you. Yeah. <laughs> do they hit you? <laughs> well, it can do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, some get surfed, some don't. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, there's a whole just romance that goes with the idea of a wooden surfboard, I think, that people, yeah. some people want to. As a sculptural object, there. Yeah, quite a beautiful form. Yeah, yeah. Depending yeah. on what you're, what you're what into. You're into yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like guitars, I think. I think the surfboards, guitars, motorcycles, yeah. cars. Yeah. There's a. Um, it is. I you know I can't think of another item though that is a singular form that connects us with the natural world in the same yeah, way. Yeah. Okay. You know, a plane has so many components. A kite yeah, has yeah. strings of things. Yeah. The surfboard. It, it's it. It's you and the surfboard and the ocean. Yeah. Uh, you might be thinking of something else. I just can't think of something. I'll have to. So in that sense, it's yeah. quite a unique object. I think it's it provides us this connection with the. I think there's um, like the the notion of surfing is really important. It's it's a passion for some people. I don't yeah. know if you. How often would you go surfing? Oh, not not any. I hardly or maybe once a once twice a year now. I, yeah. Okay. At different times in my life. I, Love yeah. surfing, got into yeah. it a lot, yeah. but um, I really the last you know decade has just dropped right off, and it's it's just one of those things. It's really addictive when you're into it, and now it's just not a, it's not a huge part no. of my daily existence You've got anymore. Other yeah, I've got other things. Yeah, and I still love when I get the chance. It's great, but yeah. of course I flounder around like a dead penguin now. So it's <laughs> You take yeah. the longest, heaviest board you can get, and you can walk right out to the tip and do a handstand, and nobody cares. Um, a lot of these boards that you've made have been decorated by other artists, and and you've decorated them yourself. And I'm just wondering, do, are these art boards used in the water? Yeah, generally, no, but they're all usable, so they're all made to mm. be used, and yeah. they're waterproofed, and you know, there's no yeah. reason why they can't be used. But it, depending, you know, like some artists, for example, you know, Stephen Bowers, we've done quite yep. a few boards with Stephen. And, you know, his, his, any of his work is in a particular bracket of the highly art Highly decorative. Highly decorative. Story-driven. There's, there's a narrative. Yep. There's, and his work is collected by a certain echelon of art yep. collectors. Yeah. So they're very expensive, those boards. So... The likelihood of those ending up being surfed are pretty slim. They could be. If Stephen Bowers decorates one of your boards, it almost puts it in a glass case. And I'm just so, like, you, you know, the conceptual artist would uh, would circumvent the function to the extent that it was morphed into something that uh, symbolised perhaps the function but yeah. couldn't be functional. Yeah. I'm just wondering from you, obviously, that function is still important. It, it, it's really important for me that I it leaves my studio like that. I want it to yeah. be functional is there, in that instant. Could you kind of... Is that something that you can articulate the reason why that's important? Or is it just sort of well? Just, uh, it's important with the surfboard to me because the surfboard is an extraordinary object in that it it brings together 
sculpture as a sculptural mm. form and hydrodynamic and the design of the actual form itself to perform in that yeah. environment yeah. and the craftsmanship that goes together in a wooden board so yeah. it's not a pumped out blank or yeah. anything like that. So all those things together make it quite a unique object. Yeah, I, I think the importance of the surfboard itself is is what really draws me to it. And it, you know, it, the surfing surfboard history goes you know right back to Hawaiian days. Yep. You know, when Captain Cook first dropped in there and came yep. across it, and yep. then there's actually evidence that it goes way beyond those times. You yeah, know, wow. but it's related to cultures and standing yep. in community and the, the you know, the higher up the hierarchy of the chief had the longer boards to swap, yep. you know, and it's always been this cross gender, women and men surfed. Wow. And then, you know, the missionaries moved in from America and banned it as a sinful practice. <laughs> they was having too much fun, you know. <laughs> Goodness. And so surfing was banned in Hawaii. No it way. It was outrageous, yeah. And then it was probably the early 1900s when Tom Blake, an American, uh-huh. who was a swimmer and, uh, and invented it, he invented all sorts of things. And one of the things he did was develop the hollow surfboard and then yeah. the first fin on the surf. So um, it was steerable. Yeah, and so and he, he came back in and it began to, it sort of, mm. you know, reinvigorated surfing culture in Hawaii and it sort mm. of grown on again from there. So, mm. it, you know, the, the surfboard itself, it's like a, it's a symbol of a champion of, of oppression, of, you know, mm. of kind of religious fundamentalists. Mm. So, like, it's, it's an incredible history of the surfboard. Yeah, wow. And when you think of its form, it's, a, it's kind of the warrior's shield. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sort of fact, yeah and surfers are, are typically mavericks and yeah. outcasts, perhaps. Yeah, well, that's changing. But yeah, now it's become such a mainstream, popularised commercial activity. But you go back to the history of it, it yeah. was always on the outside yeah. after it had been banned, you know. Originally, yeah. it was it was part of culture in Hawaii, and then it yeah. was banned, so then it always had to come from the outside again. Yeah. It's just why it's such an incredible object. Mm. When you do, if you do end up mm. thinking of another object that connects mm. you to the world like that... Maybe somebody know. can write in. They yeah. can tell us. Yeah. They can give me a phone call if they want. I'm interested in whether or not there's a genuine Australian aesthetic in surfing and its associated culture. And can uh, you talk to that a little I'm bit? I'm probably or? the wrong person to answer that. Really, I mean, yeah. I, I don't have enough. Kind there of are some clothing companies here, like Billabong and Quicksilver. They're Australian companies. Mm-hmm. They've really, yeah, you know, it's surfwear, it's casual wear. That's true, but that's that's another thing altogether. The the whole surfwear idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you know that's a commercial construct that uh, in many ways has nothing to do with surfing yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's driven by a market niche and you know people jumped in and I mean yeah. you, you can see people London or New York wearing surf gear that have never surfed yeah, do you know I know somebody who's who's 18 he sells on Instagram used surfwear from the 1980s yeah. that's his business at the moment yeah and i know somebody who designs surfwear yeah. and sells it like yeah. does screen printing of and this person's early 20s yeah so they're making businesses selling yeah doing effectively what quicksilver and billabong yeah. did and it's it's a market and there's yeah. you know there's an audience and yeah. so if you've got any yeah. of your old hoodies from back in the day yeah they're probably 
What's the biggest wave you've surfed? Oh, I'm not a big wave surfer at all. You know, something head high is big for me. Head high. That'd do me too. Like, yeah. <laughs> Start running. Yeah. And have you fallen off? Oh, yeah, heaps. Yeah. Has yeah. there ever been a situation where you go, oh, my God? Uh, yeah, I've had a few injuries. I've broken a rib and broken a toe. Seen a couple of sharks. So, uh, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, yeah. if you, yeah, been a long, long time surfing over a lot of years. So, yeah. yeah. You've been designing things for a long time. Do you think the design process has evolved over that time? You've yeah. mentioned that it has. Can you quantify it? Yeah, it very much changed. So, and and the changes also um, align to life changes, like circumstances yeah. in life. And uh, so, I guess when I first left art school, I would have been a really particular. I designed it a particular way where I had an idea, I drew it and made yeah. it, you know, I think I described that yeah. before and knew yeah. exactly what I was doing and I, I controlled the material, yeah. I, everything was as I envisaged it. Yeah. I know that method very well. Yeah, yeah, you do, you're an expert <laughs> in that. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I went through a um, personal circumstances of a divorce and uh, really life-changing things which changed the way I looked at the world and changed the way I worked and whereas before everything was constructed and I you know had a goal and this was what it was then this event happened that really was just it happened I had there's no way I could influence it stop it or apocalypse now it was a very apocalyptic and uh and it, it completely changed how I would look at creating work. And I started mm. working with found material, like things mm. that came and had their own quality. And I was mm. intrigued by things that were scarred mm. and messed up like I was, you know. <laughs> All of that sort of, um, that, that really changed how I mm. started looking at, at creating things. Yeah, yeah. And I've never since gone back to dictating what the material should do or could yeah, do. Yeah, wow. Or, you know, whatever yeah wow. so now I work much more organically and yeah. work with what the qualities of materials are yeah. more of an artist isn't it the, the designer would have yeah I think of the criteria yeah. that they want to achieve yeah the artist has yeah a it's concept. like for example you know there's bookshelves over here that are all mm. laminated and specific yeah. curves and stuff I would yeah. never do that now because, well actually I shouldn't say oh, laminated these chair backs right yeah. this is a bit of an anomaly these chair yeah. designs to what I've been doing in yeah. the last decade so yeah now I will find things that have that curve or you know I'll yeah. just work off what the sort of nature and quality of material is but these chairs these chairs are a structure for another idea that's quite conceptual in some ways yeah. and it's the investigation of these wings so what yeah. these chairs are is a standard can I say that yeah. is that okay yeah. standard yeah. sort of dining chair yeah. and up the back come two poles and there's two i'm going to call them wings that come off to the right and the left away from these poles and they're made out of felt no they're made out of it's called echo panel echo panel which is re 60 percent recycled plastic bottles and it's an acoustic panel so the purpose of it is to twofold in this instance one is absorbed sound so i was yep. really thinking of this in a restaurant situation yep. where yeah, i'm sure a lot of people had this problem that you want to go out and have a intimate meal with one yep. other person or just yep. a conversation with one other person and you can't hear a thing you can't yeah everything yep. else is too noisy yep. so the idea of this panel is that one it'll sucks up a little bit of the sound that 
is on the outside, and then because of the angles that are coming up, comes out at, I don't know what the angle is, but let's say 30 degrees or something mm. out from either side of your head, mm. it's like, um, think of a, a horse wearing blinkers, but these are much yep. more open. Um, it actually bounces the sound off, yep. you're sitting opposite me, it comes yep. in and bounces back into my ears. So there's that, and then it also gives you a visual sense of enclosure yep. without being totally enclosed, and it was really mindful of thinking about the, the space that it created to accommodate yeah. different sized yeah. heads, hairstyles, people, you know, all, all of that, so, so that you can, you can sort of inhabit this space without yeah. it dominating you. Or and messing up your hair too. Yeah, which is, you know, it's important for some people. And it was also, this was specifically, I designed these for an exhibition that was yeah. um, looking at mid-century furniture. So it's done in the aesthetic that was, yeah. you know, kind of related to yeah. mid-century. Yeah. Um, and TH Brown is a South Australian company that right. um, I used as a company to yeah. inspire this. And, and they yeah. made Danish modern designs. Yeah, Danish modern, yeah. With Australian materials. Yeah. Mm. And there's, a, you know, there's a whole relationship of negative spaces and floating yeah. planes and the, yeah. the, the way things come together. That, yeah. I, that was what sort of intrigued me. Yeah. And they also, they made a very iconic bar stool that's yeah. very sculptural yeah. um, in its kind of presence. And I was just the kind of the essence of what that was, even though yeah. this looks nothing like that. These are quite sculptural. You know, these stand yeah. up like flags on the beach or something. Yeah. Like they, you yeah, know, this yeah, has yeah. A, a very distinctive presence as a yeah. chair so uh, that, yeah. that's kind of where that design these are on the website as well so are they? yeah okay yeah there's another section in there for furniture so another section for sculpture so there's check like, out yeah. walker surfboards peter walker surfboards no just walker surfboards walker surfboards com. Yeah. Com. Yeah. and look for the echo chair but yeah. echo e-c-h-o yeah. yeah are you going to develop this idea further or is it sort of i don't know you know I, i'm intrigued by it i think it's mm. actually a really interesting idea good things I made it <laughs> but um, it comes from a very personal space too, it does though, come, it? Yeah, yeah well that's another thing I, I have a significant hearing problem yeah. loss so yeah. It, yeah it's really driven by my own you know kind yeah. of needs in that sense I don't know I, I haven't sort of been overwhelmed by the response to them I think they're pretty interesting but uh, yeah. some people do but in general I, I haven't yeah. I haven't really done anything to promote them since that exhibition. Do you have a design philosophy? Notions of what are good or bad in design? Mm. Yeah, well, I think it's pretty hard to answer in some ways. I guess I'm looking for, in my own design and in others, design that doesn't isn't wasteful. It doesn't use toxicity in materials. Mm. that um, has some kind of value in the quality of what it represents, like what it is, do we need mm. do we need it? And that's a mm. big question, you know, mm. what we need is often superfluous mm. things. Yeah. It, yeah, if something has integrity from the designer, uh, you know, what, what it's for, what its purpose, is there an ethical yeah. philosophy evident, then yeah. um inspired by it you know? yeah you would have to mark and judge you know in a quantitative way designs all the time yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's tricky yeah i think in the circumstance I, I personally find it 
pretty hard to judge something that I've got no connection with, you know. Mm. I don't want to be put myself in that position as a judge. When I'm working with students, there's a whole understanding and relationship of where they've come from, what they're trying to achieve, yep. have they you know, managed to achieve it or made progress, yep. all that kind of thing. Yeah. That, yeah. that then becomes a really important part of how to evaluate it. That's completely understandable. If you were coming from the outside, say you were an adjudicator adjudicating yeah. a master's thesis and that master's thesis was by practice, for instance. You don't know the person, you don't yeah. know what their goals and agendas are, except from their artist statement. Yeah, which, I mean, you, that's, if that's what you've got, that's, that's what you've got to work do, with. Right? Yeah. yeah. But at least that, if there's a, in that circumstance, there's, there's probably going to be quite a bit of additional information that helps inform yeah. you about what they're trying to do. You know, you've probably been in more difficult situations where you're judging a show, for example. I know you've had to judge competitions mm. and shows where maybe you've got a set criteria, but how do you, yeah, what are you judging it on? Yeah, you, the, the judging of an exhibition is a point in time. It's a point in time and place with people. So yeah. if anyone's not been successful in an exhibition that's been adjudicated, don't lose heart because it just meant the group of those designers had a particular thing going on. Yeah. Next day, with another group of designers, the same exhibition, you have a completely different thing yeah. going on. It's amazing, isn't <laughs> so it? you just got to, like, yeah. please, if somebody's going to put themselves forward, you've just got to roll with those punches and don't get disheartened. Mm-hmm. It's not that the work is bad. It's just that on that day, it, there yeah, was... It didn't turn out that way. There, yeah. there was... Yeah. Things yeah, going on. Well, competitions are like that, aren't they? That's yeah. exactly what they're yeah. like. Very difficult to, to, to have a quality judgment on something that somebody's put their heart and soul into. Mm. Because if you could judge heart and soul, mm. everyone would get a prize. Yeah. I mean, it depends, I guess, what your criteria are too, isn't it? You know, what you're looking for. What are you judging it on? Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. I, my experience would be that the judges don't know until the day. No. Yeah, although some some do. No, but most judging is done on familiarity, really. You've got to know what something to judge it. Like if you're presented with something that you don't you don't comprehend. It'd be pretty hard to it, it would finally be, be dismissed, hard. right? I think um you know, once again if we come back to like here's what the artist set out to achieve and to what extent yeah. did they achieve it, you can judge entirely on that. You know, is it supposed to be functional? How functional is yeah. it? Is it supposed to be lightweight? How lightweight is it? You know, mm-hmm. is it supposed to be beautiful? Well, how beautiful is it? Yeah. Yeah. You could judge it on a, along the lines of something like: Has it been pared back to the point where it's the essence of what that designer or maker or artist yeah. is trying to achieve? Set out to achieve. Yeah. But yeah. I find that kind of an unfair judgment too, because who's to say that it should be pared back? Why not yeah. add? Yeah. Why not add more? Yeah. Why not make your softboard uh-huh. with a Stephen Bowers? Yeah. Um, because you've been decorative. sort of conditioned. But, you know, we've so, been talking about this yeah. notion of ideals right from the start of this conversation. And, yeah. And in that sense, you've got to say, well, okay, this is where I stand. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, sitting around in Tasmania, little Tasmania at the bottom of the world there, and mm. we thought we were the centre of the design universe, you know. <laughs> And we would used to sit around Maybe and, were. and laugh at all the magazines that yeah, would come from, yeah. like fine woodworking and, yeah, you know, yeah, and all yeah. this sort of stuff, and just guffaw and you know, you know. And it wasn't until I ended up living in America yeah. that I realised how um, 
how narrow my kind of design sensibilities had been driven yeah. by there was a few architects you know yeah. hundred years ago who, yeah. who reduced everything to minimalist sort yeah. of ideals yeah. and we haven't moved from that that mm, you know the aesthetic's <laughs> pretty pretty simple it's um, yeah. it's incredible and yeah. so when we and we have a very eurocentric view of the yeah. design or certainly my yeah. education was and I see a lot of evidence around that would support that now too I think mm, but so do I but you I went to the states and then suddenly there was people presenting ideas at RISD that you know were from South America from Portugal mm. Portugal mm. from Peru from yeah. uh, Africa like mm. Europe there was just and it was stuff that I could hardly comprehend because I was oh everything's from, you know geometric forms and reduced down to this yeah. and it was like it was like oh my god how boring is that compared yeah. to like all the richness I'm starting yeah. to see and the ideas yeah. and the philosophies built into these which previously I would have just gone ha ha you know yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah really I, it opened my eyes a lot Going over there. How important is going overseas for Australian designers and makers? Well, actually, how important is going overseas for anyone? Yeah. What do you reckon? Well, it's, it's just so valuable in how it expands your knowledge and thinking mm. and can put you in perspective. It's something of our time that we, we can all travel so easily and mm. to the detriment of the planet, we're all doing it, you know. It's no longer a six-week journey from one side of the world to the other. No, it's not, is it? So, we yeah. can travel uh, almost instantaneously via our smartphones or uh, yeah, computers exactly. too. Yeah, so long as it's up there. If it's not up there, like if yeah. you wanted to investigate, for instance, Iranian furniture, yeah. you would really struggle because it's not up there. You would have to travel. Yeah, I'll have to have a look at that. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really strong tradition yeah. of Persian marquetry yeah. and yeah. Persian design and architecture. I think the design and architecture will be fairly well documented, but yep. you try and find objects. Mm-hmm. And what about um, objects mm. from Myanmar? Yeah. I saw some bowls that Frank Bauer, who's a metal designer yeah. uh-huh. of some expertise here in Adelaide, had from Myanmar. They were the most exquisite thing. Real right. Man, mm-hmm. made out of bamboo, highly decorative, intricate, done yeah. by hand, done by children because it was so intricate. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Try and find that on the internet. Even if you did, you can't hold it in your hands. Yeah. But I'm just, you mm-hmm. know, I'm just sort of trying to tease out this notion of travel. And, travel. Yeah. Well, you know, I know for me those experiences have been really valuable. Mm. My first one was with Chiswell Furniture in yeah. 1989, I think, and they took me to the Colonel Furniture Fair, which is yep. a large manufacturing furniture fair, and then to Atlanta, Georgia to see yep. another one. And I'd, I'd never seen anything like the scale of these, you know, yep. to, just to begin to get an understanding of the yep. sheer, you know, scale and volume of that kind of furniture design industry yep. was a shock, you know? yeah, very yeah. shocking. The yeah. more famous one, of course, is Milan, the Milan yeah. Furniture Fair, mm-hmm. and you've been there. I have um, a number of times from... RISD had an association with that fair and we were exhibiting students' works there. So I've been there quite a number of times with particular displays we put on and a few times just as a a viewer as well. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite an event. Have you been there? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's staggering that, again, the sheer scale of it is overwhelming. And it's, you know, like I've appreciated my opportunities I've been given to do that it's not mm. something I would seek out I don't particularly mm. enjoy those sorts of environments what about somebody starting out would you say look yeah. do you have to go and exhibit at say Malone Furniture Fair or Cologne Furniture Fair you don't have to but you know if 
it it's probably depends if you're wanting to position yourself internationally and in Europe. Then yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a notion that uh, or a definition of an expert that is somebody from overseas. Yeah. I'm just wondering if if somebody was to go and exhibit in Milan Furniture Fair to have a more national profile. Yeah. What? It, well, it adds to their, you know, their experience, doesn't it? So therefore, then it adds to their perception back here. If somebody mm. has that kind of experience, yeah. it adds yeah. to their expanse with yeah. ideas and have what they can bring into thinking back here. So, mm. yeah, I think it's... In an American context, would you need to travel? Because the market is so much bigger. Yeah, you don't need to. Is that, I mean... You're quite right. We've got a very small population and an even smaller population that is interested in the yeah. kind of work that designer makers do. So it's pretty microscopic. Yeah. The States is, you know, 360 million people. There is an entire culture there that supports yeah. any yeah. aspect of enterprise, basically. Um, I think the mentality of people in the United States too would be different to here. I'm just wondering, how do you find a mentality of I'm going to start out or I've got this idea, I want to investigate this idea? Yeah, it's incredible in the States. That was probably one of my favourite things about America, the general optimism that is there. Uh, And that's, if you have an idea that has, you know, any merit at all, someone else is going to be, and you're talking to people about it, they'll get behind it and help make it happen. It's like, oh, yeah, we can do That sounds great, you know? And I know someone else over here and someone else over there. And suddenly there's this, you know, the whole, there's a support structure. And that's quite different to here. How does it happen here? Well, um, you know, of course, this is a very generalist kind of thing to say, but there can quite often be a, you know, an initial thing, oh, well, that'll never work here. You know, like there's yeah. this sort of cutting down to yeah. come on and get real. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The American dreamers are, okay, this might happen here, it can't happen, or, well, if you've got it, why is it you and not me? Or, you know, yeah. there's a, there is a yeah. difference in. A kind of an envy thing, or. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know. You know. Yeah. But I don't like to generalise on that. No, no, for sure. And there's so much good with any culture, Australian, American, British, French, Russian, whatever. Like all all cultures have got benefits and negatives. Yeah. But I'm just wondering about from an Australian perspective, is there something that we can do like community-wise that we can sort of generate this sense that, well, yeah, we can can get this going. You know, we can Mm. bring this... Maybe a sense more of enthusiasm. I don't know. I'm just trying to tease this idea out. I don't really know either. I think it's just a case of connecting with pe- like-minded people in many ways. Yeah. It's like you're doing something, and something like this. You're taking an initiative. Hmm. You've got an interest, um, hmm. and you're hmm. going to attract people who want to talk to you about it because there's something, you know, there's something to build on. That's how these things start. Hopefully, you'll get listeners that, you know, that. That builds up. Yeah, that's that's what we're trying to do. And I think for me personally, I'm pretty keen to tease out some ideas about what it's like to be a creative person. If somebody was starting out, they might find some of the pitfalls, yeah. be able to step over it, and or even find influences in people they haven't necessarily heard of, or mm. you know, because we don't always exist in a magazine. Yeah. You know, like yeah. some of us don't even care about that sort of positioning, uh-huh. and yeah. and some people care about a hell of a lot. Doesn't mean there's a, a value judgment there. Somebody does, somebody doesn't. So, yeah. but everyone's got a story to tell that's that's worthwhile hearing, and, and yeah. hopefully getting inspired by. 
there's um what did I hear this quote on the radio the other day I don't know who said it it wasn't applied to a specific thing at all but it said it was basically if we don't change direction soon we're going to end up where we're going (laughs) (laughs) that was my response too I was laughing my head off in the studio I loved it I've written it up on the wall now yeah Yeah, yeah, it encapsulates a lot doesn't it yeah Yeah. gosh If you cast your mind back to when your kids were really young, what skills did you learn that helped you juggle the demands of home, business, and creative drive? I guess the biggest thing is just to the sense that they're all entwined. They're not separate entities. I've probably learned more from my kids than they've learned from me. Yeah. Yeah. Don't tell them that, though. Well, they won't believe it. Yeah, they really but, you know, just yeah, watching them adapt to circumstances and situations yeah. and yeah. the endless kind of fresh, you know, from really little even yeah. to now. My you know, my kids are in their thirties now. Yeah, it, yeah, it's, um, yeah, yeah, Totally blown away by the way they look at the world. That's, that's yeah. a fantastic thing. You did move to the state. I know your kids from maybe solo, each of them solo came and lived with you, but they weren't yeah. all there all the time. Not all the time, no. Well, it, yeah, it, it's, um, they were very tricky circumstances. Yeah. It's probably not a good thing to go in publicly, I think, probably too much. They did. You know, one of them spent all their high school years there. I basically spent 10 years in the States, and there are a number of factors that took me there but Mm -hmm. uh, essentially I got offered uh, an amazing job at Mm. the Rhode Island School of Design Mm. which is a a very highly reputed Mm. art design school in the world and I didn't have a job back here in Adelaide so there was a there was an enormous it was probably the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life Mm. was to take that job or not but you know Mm. sometime apart from kids and things Mm. so but I spent the next 10 years uh, I would spend four months in the states teaching and then I would come back in the middle of the year for three months because the American academic system gives you all of summer off then I'd go back and teach four months and then I would come back again for six weeks so I just spent 10 years crisscrossing the world commuting to work basically and having to be away from some of the kids because one of them lived over there for all their high school years each of them lived there for a year of their life at high school but and they were all not at the same time so there was always somebody over there living with me and it was always coming back to spend my three months with the other kids in the middle of the year and then at that six weeks so what it was kind of a weird structure of of a way to do it and it was very painful in a lot of ways having mm. to go away you know hated leaving every time mm. and then on the other hand i would come back and i'd have three months where i didn't have to do anything except hang out with them you know or be there for them they were mm. still at school all those sort of things so yeah. it was torturous in one aspect and on the other mm. aspect i probably got to see more than people living with their kids all the time yeah because you've just got to be present in that present time yeah it's interesting how things that are terribly painful and hard to deal with can be benefits at the same time yeah yeah you wouldn't wish it you know i certainly wouldn't but at the same time it kind of makes you what you are and there's no turning back there's no regrets yeah 
yeah, you can't. And I remember in the midst of a very despairing period there, yeah, yeah, yeah. an older woman saying to me, you know, and hearing a bit just the circumstance I was, I was in, she said, well, this, whatever you do, don't look back. And it, yeah, just yeah. at that time, that was the best thing for me to hear because I was yep. wallowing a bit in yep. what was lost. It, yeah. She really helped me just go, yep, I'm heading forward. And yeah, you find the teacher yeah. when you need it. Yeah. Have your kids taught you anything helpful about creativity? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, I think probably not to hang on to any ideas that I thought existed about creativity, (laughs) you know, and that's not just applied to creativity, but they Mm. always would come up with maybe an an alternative thinking to the way I was thinking, Mm. so that that's, I think I've learned from them that, oh, okay, yeah, Mm. don't lock myself in here there's yeah. another way to look at this I'm convinced that studio practice is only possible if you've got a partner supporting unit do you agree with that um, no I probably don't agree with that I think if you've got a partner supporting you that's absolutely fantastic I think if uh, if you were doing it totally solo I think you would possibly still I, I mean I don't know how to say yeah. that you know when yeah, yeah. when Michelle and I were married and working through the studio we, we were a partnership yeah, you know, so yeah. it worked maybe there's a momentum you don't yeah. change the sh- the direction of yeah. the ship because that's the way it's going and yeah yeah what was that quote you said just before that really be quite you know if you uh, don't change direction now yeah, we're we're gonna gonna keep going up, we're going to end up where we're going yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's good yeah but I mean, yeah, I think there's great example, many examples that you would know as well of, of people who have very successful creative practices that are partnerships, you know? Yep. And there's so much, you know, as you know, creating work is, you know, 30% of what needs to be done. There's so much other stuff that you've got to do in, you know, marketing and material gathering, you know, yeah. just everything, you know, those sort of existences is yeah. a lot more than being creative in the studio. And I, yeah. I remember going through art school and I think it was Peter Taylor at the time saying, you know, out of all of you, there's a very small percentage of you that are going to do it. And it's not because you're not talented or skilled or enthusiastic no. or anything. Some people you, have got the ingredients and yeah, some people and you don't. just got to stick at it and yeah. then the cards have to fall right too, yeah. you know. Hard work is really the only way. Yeah, and just, yeah, commitment, I think. Commitment. Really committed. Perseverance. Believing in yourself, yeah, perseverance, all of those things. Yeah, bouncing back. It certainly won't happen in little spurts. Yeah. Yeah. I heard this really awesome quote, we're going to trade quotes now, from (laughs) Anton Chekhov. Try again, fail again, fail better. Yeah, right. you just got to keep picking yourself up. Yeah, yeah. Just keep playing forward. I think also emotions along the lines of envy or jealousy or those are completely detrimental to your creative practice yeah, and they've got to be squashed. That's just a waste of time. Absolutely yeah. a waste of time. Mm-hmm. You've got to cut them out of your mental vocabulary Yeah, and yeah. revel in somebody else's Ab- success. Absolutely. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. that's yep. great. And that adds to the community. It know? adds it's to the like, community. Yeah, if you get yeah. Yeah, that sort of jealousy and the, oh, why is it you? Yeah, yeah, or if only. And that's a yeah. natural tendency for most of us to fall into, you know. It's yeah, like, I, wonder, oh, I wonder if that's, yeah. I wonder, you know, if, if yeah. we're going to tease out an Australian sensibility 
as opposed to the American sensibility we were talking about just before. Mm. To what extent do you think that's a kind of a cultural thing? Well, in Australia, we've got this notion of tall poppy syndrome, that yeah. if anyone pops their head up above the grass, yeah. we're going to mm-hmm. cut it off. Yeah. I don't know how much that's true. I can feel like it's evident, you know, and certainly the Anglo-Saxon white Australian has definitely come from this, you know, there's the convict history, there's the penal settlements, there's, mm. you know, people mm. telling you what to do, what you can't mm. do, yeah, there, there is that sort of sense of history. I'd like um, to put it out there that maybe that's something that can be worked on collectively and let's celebrate people's success. Mm. Let's have a go. Let's yeah. keep having a go. Yeah, Making attempts at excellence. What's the new challenges coming up for you? The new challenges? Mm. Getting older is a bit of a challenge, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's actually great. I'm really enjoying the age I am. I'm 57 now. Yeah. But it's more thinking about life no longer appears quite as infinite as it did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know the feeling. <laughs> And so there's so many years, and how do you want to spend them? You know, yeah. where, where, how do you want to put your energies? Yeah. Where do you want to make them most? So that that's kind of a, an exciting challenge coming up yeah. for me, I think. Yeah. And it, I, I don't have a you know clear kind of resolution or answer to that at all. Yeah. But um, I think incrementally things are. I'm probably making changes that in the way I work, the or lifestyle things that are sort of heading towards. In some ways, I feel like I'm coming round circle to, you know, the, I think my probably feel that my strongest years of idealism were probably my late teens, mm. early twenties, mm. and then the life might have got, you know, got more complicated just with things, and you're dealing with day to day existence and all of that, mm. you know, just all that sort of stuff. And I feel like I'm sort of at a point now where I can sort of refocus a bit on more idealistic kind of approaches that mm. were strong in me mm. in those years. Yeah, Yeah. well, yeah, bloody good. I mean, I suppose uh, once your kids start leaving the coop, all yeah. of them, I think, have left the yeah, coop, haven't Yeah, they've all gone now. Yeah. There is more time. Yeah, and you, I mean, you focus, as you know, you focus on your kids at different mm. intensities at different times, but mm. uh, yeah. So. Your kids are actually focusing on their kids to some extent. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have hobbies other than surfing and sculpting? Yeah. Um, uh, I really like bushwalking at the yeah. moment. I'm doing as much walking as I can. Yep. I live right over the road from a national park, so yep. that's a wonderful thing. I can do a walk in there that can be yep. half an hour or eight hours yep. just at my doorstep. Yep. So that's, yeah. Folks, it is beautiful here. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's... Yeah, the old koala in the tree, and sometimes <laughs> a roo in the backyard. But I've never, I've never really been a hobby person, uh, hobbies. But I always see these things as integrated into my life. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? So yeah. in fact, I used to surf a lot, and then making surfboards, and then that, that became part of my creative life. And now I'm at the moment I'm focusing back on these natural organic materials, and I I spend a lot of time in the bush because that's where my references and sources of inspiration are so do you have a superpower other than i don't have a superpower not other than anything i don't have one <laughs> what would it be if you would have one if you wanted to have one if i wanted to yeah 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 no advice it has a what's the best decision you ever made mm. uh, interesting there could be a few couldn't there but the best one 
it might have been to walk out of that ashram in Pondicherry. Yeah, wow. You know, so because uh, I just focused <laughs> at that point on realigning all my energy into what's here and now. That yeah. was that's probably the best decision. Yeah. What's the hardest decision you ever made? To take the job at RISD. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you said before. Yeah, that well, that was a tough decision. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah, just a most amazing positive outcome what yeah, I did yeah, right. hardest decision to make but everything lined up for it yeah it's, this is all in hindsight isn't it yeah hindsight's a really awesome yeah but there was I mean there was enough indicators at the time even though it was a hard decision that that was a, the, the right yeah. decision you know yeah. so there was enough there to yeah I don't think you'd do that sort of thing lightly Oh, my goodness, no. I just yeah. don't think you could, hey? Yeah. Have you ever been in a really bad headspace, and how did you get yourself out of it? Yeah, I have, um, you know, from all that period of personal family trauma. And I think what, and some of those, you know, leaving times, we happened to go back to RISD when all the family weren't together and all this sort mm. of thing. But uh, I think the... Um, what got me out of it is other people, actually. Advice or in terms of being present with other people? I think a bit of both. Sometimes it was advice, but I yeah. think it's the presence of others. For me, I would, could seek out... I, I fortunately just came in touch with a, a group of people that completely and utterly aligned with my sensibilities as yeah. far as value of how to treat other people and ethics and, you know, it was... And they just happened to be running the furniture studio. Well, it's an, a, a very yeah. extraordinary thing. They yeah. uh, they had an international search for that position for, and they ran it three times and they couldn't <laughs> fill the job. And, uh, and when... When I first heard about the job, Donald Fortescue rang me from San yeah. Francisco and yeah. said, Peter, there's a job. This is when I was working at the jam. And he yeah. said, there's a job that suits you, you know, yeah. going here. Yeah. And I rang and I spoke to the head of the furniture department, Roseanne Summerson at the yeah. time. And it was in the middle of this really traumatic divorce. And I, I couldn't even think, you know, yeah. beyond yeah. tomorrow so we never made con- I just never pursued it and that yeah. was the end of it and yeah. then years later a couple of years later I was in the States for something else and I was introduced to Roseanne at where I was yeah. at Sofa in Chicago yeah. and, and someone said oh this is Roseanne Summerson from Lucy and yeah. we so we met each other and she said oh we still we still haven't filled that position if you want to apply so I did and yeah. then I applied and then you know, went through. A, it's a very rigorous process to get yeah. a job there. But it was, you know, there, there were many other designers and applicants who could have filled those shoes. But there was never the right chemistry, and they were yeah. waiting for the right chemistry as well. And it worked. And they, it was yeah. just one of those fortuitous things. It stayed open, and when I applied, it was like, yes, this is yeah. going to work. So they offered it to me. So that was, you know, they were. A, the right people at the right time yeah. and then um, and then I met Agnieszka within the first few years of being at RISD and yeah. Agnieszka's my partner now um, and she's just moved to and Australia. She, she was also teaching at RISD yeah so yeah. you know th- this there was this uh, extraordinary network of really yeah. important relationships came out of making that hardest of hard decision I'm ever thankful for the people who helped me make that decision so you wouldn't you wouldn't wish, wish that having to make that decision on your worst enemy but no no god damn there was some yeah life's like that 
If you could go back and give advice to a young Peter, mm. what would it be and do you think you'd listen? <laughs> I think, and just in light of everything I just said to you then, probably my advice would be to listen to your elders and I think, no, I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going my way. You guys, exactly. I'm not doing yeah. what you're talking That's about. That's the trouble with being young and enthusiastic. Mind you, if you think about it, your elders um, were going to dam the Franklin River. Yeah. Our elders, not all of them. Yeah. Bob Brown's one of our elders. He wasn't yeah. going to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's like public elders, figures, yeah, leaders. It's, it's a and selective process. There's also personal ones, you know, yeah. your, your, maybe your parents or your grandparents or your, you know, friends, close associates. Do you have any advice you'd give to somebody who's just about to start out designing and making stuff? Go for it. Like, yeah, make sure you love it. Yeah. That would be my biggest advice. Just, yeah. just go for it. Have yeah. believe, you know, believe in yourself. As yeah. much as you can. As much as you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could retire tomorrow, maybe you are retired. Are you retired? Retire. That's a weird concept. Yeah. What would be the top three things you'd do with your time? Probably at this point, uh, I'd spend as much time as I can in the studio, yeah. uh, as much time bushwalking in, in yeah. wilderness environments, yeah. and time with my kids and grandkids, and do all of that with my partner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. people oriented. How can people get in touch with you and see your work? We've talked about your website, which yep, is website. Walker so have a look at the work, and then uh, email is walkersurfboards at gmail dot com. Uh, or I'm also linked to the University of South Australia, so yep. people could find me on those staff pages through yep. that or get in touch with you. They can totally <laughs> get in touch with me and I'll yeah. totally not give everyone out your phone. <laughs> Have we left anything out? Is there something you'd like to add? I can't think of what might be missing, but thanks for asking me to do this with you. It's great. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. As I said, it's like it, it's it's not often you actually make time to stop and think about some of these yeah. driving forces and yeah. pivotal moments. And, yeah, you know, that's it. This is what right. it is today, and tomorrow might be different. Yeah, we could have this same conversation. Yeah, it would be different, and, and be different. I think that's really good. Yeah. You know, it means that you know we're living, we're living a life. Things are changing all the time. Some yeah. things don't change very fast, but some yeah. things change really fast. Keep having a go. Thanks for being a part of the Designer Maker Revolution. Uh, thanks, Adrian. And it's, um, I'll be really interested to hear everybody else you talk to as well. Thank you so much, Peter. Bloody awesome. And thank you, all listeners out there. I hope you got some great insights out of that. This podcast is produced by me, Adrian Potter. You can find me at adrianpotter.net.au. You can contact me at make at designermakerrevolution.com. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. Love to hear from you. I'll see you next time. Bye.